In another time and another place, three men went to jail. It was a dungeon, actually. According to the law of the land, they'd all committed crimes worthy of life in prison. The laws were clear. Their crimes were clear. The consequences were clear. Life in prison was their sentence. But one day a lawyer came to each of the three men saying, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is that you have no further appeals. Furthermore, you deserve your sentence, and you will die here unless you accept the good news. Well, what is the good news, they said. The good news is that someone else has volunteered to serve your sentence for you, and the judge has agreed to allow this for your sakes. All you have to do is accept this new plan, and you can go free. First man was too proud. He said, well, I don't believe I should be here in the first place. I haven't done anything nearly as bad as these other two. I'll get out of here on my own. The second man was a skeptic. He said, well, let me think about it. Not sure I believe you. I need more evidence that what you are saying is true. I'll let you know if I change my mind. The third man had a little bit of faith. He said, that's awesome. I accept. Immediately he was let out of prison. The judge heard about the other two and he had pity on them and their foolishness. It turns out that it was his son who had agreed to take their sentence upon himself, even though he was innocent. So going the extra mile, he sent his son to talk to the prisoners in person. The son said to the two prisoners, I wanted to come down to this dungeon myself to explain to you that I'm actually the one who is going to pay the price for your life sentences. I'm going to do this by allowing myself to be executed for your crimes. Since I'm willing to do this for you, won't you please accept my gift and come out of this dungeon? The prideful man said, I'll find my own way out, thanks. The skeptical man said, I've thought about this a lot and it just doesn't make any sense. How could your death pay my sentence? How could your death pay the sentence of all of us? Besides, it isn't so bad down here. I think I'll pass. As the son sadly walked away, he said, Well, I'm going to die for the first guy, regardless, so I sure hope you two change your minds. After the son had given his life, the two prisoners stayed in jail, even though they could have come out at any time. The judge, however, continued to have compassion on them. He tried one last thing. He found the first man who had been let out of prison and sent him to plead with the other two. The man was loath to return to the dungeon, but out of love for the forgiving judge, he went down anyway. He said to those who had once been his fellow prisoners, you guys don't know what you're missing. It's great out here. What are you waiting for? Your sentence has already served. All you have to do is accept the forgiveness and freedom that is being offered to you. Why won't you respond to this good news like I did? But by now, the two men had experienced all the pains of prison, and they had grown hard-hearted and angry. They were furious that the first man had been let out of his sentence, and they had begun to hate the judge, somehow blaming him for their own mistakes and foolishness. Sadly, they told their former dungeon mate to leave them alone, and they settled even more deeply into their hopeless fate.
Sorry for the sad story, but it illustrates the spiritual reality for many. The fact is that pride and unbelief keep an awful lot of people from the freedom God offers through Christ. Now, let's get into our text today. We've arrived at chapter 2 in our series through the book of Hebrews. After a passage communicating the superiority of Christ over the angels, which we covered last week, the writer of Hebrews continues from chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Afterwards, at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. This is our text for today. And keeping in mind the larger context, I might summarize, summarize the main idea like this. The salvation message is good news for those who receive it and bad news for those who neglect it. All of us have probably been asked by someone before, which do you want first, the good news or the bad news? This has become a common way to share information that is going to have a big impact on our lives. What we all hope for in these situations is that maybe, somehow, the good news will cancel out the bad news, and not the other way around. We certainly hope it isn't going to be something like, well, the good news is that you've won a new car, but the bad news is that it, will, it was destroyed during the delivery process. We'd rather hear something like, the bad news is that your new car was destroyed, but the good news is that we're bringing you a nicer one to replace it. That's the kind of thing we are hoping for when someone informs us that there is good news and bad news. We're hoping maybe the good will cancel out the bad, Right? But what kind of person would say, just give me the bad news. I don't want to know about the good. Or who would say, you know, the bad news is so bad, it's so upsetting, that there's no way the good is worth hearing or worth believing or worth holding on to. I think I'll just be mad about the bad news. And yet, that is exactly what some people do with the news about salvation. Others just don't believe the bad or the good news, right? And why should they? Well, when it comes to any news, the question of believability rests on whether or not the messenger knows the truth and also whether or not the messenger is trustworthy. If the messenger is in a position to know the truth and the messenger is completely trustworthy, then it is obviously foolish to reject his message. And what if this messenger proves to have come directly from the God who created the universe? What if his message is a matter of eternal life or eternal death? What if the good news from this trustworthy source cancels out the bad news as long as you receive it? How tragic it would be if you chose not to listen or if you did not believe the messenger, or if you lived like you had forgotten 
the news he brought. So I ask you, do you want the good news first <laughs> or the bad news? Well, I'm going to start with the good news, which comes in the second half of our text this morning. From verse 3, it says, after it, which is a reference back to the message of salvation, after the message of salvation, was it the first spoken through the Lord? It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the good news I want to give you today is about salvation, this idea that we can be saved. Saved from what? Well, saved from the bad news, which we will talk about later. But should we believe this good news of salvation or not? Well, as I mentioned, that depends greatly upon the messenger. So who is the messenger delivering this news about so great a salvation? Our text says, first of all, and this is number one in your notes, salvation was announced by Christ. That's what is meant by the word translated as spoken here. It says it was spoken through the Lord. It was spoken through Christ. Spoken here in our text, if you look at it, this great salvation which was spoken, if you look at it in the original Greek, there's a picture there of a, of a spokesperson, someone who's sent out into the country like a herald, or as if someone were shouting out, you know, like with a bullhorn, an announcement. So we have here a reminder that it was God's Son, the Lord, Jesus Christ, who came down to the dungeon himself with something to proclaim, something of great consequence, an announcement of great and glorious news. The inspired author of Hebrews had already mentioned in the first verse of the book that prophets had previously announced the good news. And then immediately prior to the text today, he's also been talking about the announcement of the angels who, if you'll remember, said, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. But the major point of Hebrews so far has been that the prophets' declarations and the angels' and others' declarations were nothing compared to when Jesus started making the announcement himself. God had taken on flesh and come down to earth, not only to earn our salvation on the cross, but also to proclaim the availability of that salvation to the world. Remember, Jesus announced our salvation before achieving it on the cross. For that matter, Jesus announced our salvation from the cross itself. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus rose from the dead to announce the availability of salvation after the cross. We need to understand that the primary and best source of the good news we call the gospel, the number one announcer of it, is Jesus Christ himself. This one who John says was the word also gave us the word. This one of the writer of Hebrews says was the exact representation of God was first among those who announced to us the good news about how we can be saved. The primary proclaimer and the original source of the good news was Jesus himself. Does he have access to the truth? Is he trustworthy? 
Jesus is the one who said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the one who said, whoever believes in me will live again even if he dies. Jesus Christ was the first to proclaim the full message of salvation. He is the ultimate source of the good news. So I return to my initial question. Can we trust the messenger and his message or not? Can we trust Jesus, the primary source of the gospel? Obviously, I believe we can. What about you? What if the best cancer doctor in the world said, Unfortunately, you have a rare form of cancer. That's the bad news. But I have good news. There is a cure for this kind. Just take these pills and your cancer will be completely gone by tomorrow. That's great news. But what if you didn't trust the doctor so you never took the pills? Well, the news was good, but it was never good for you. It never became good for you. One would think that God had done enough by sending his own son to announce the good news about salvation. But many people still wouldn't believe, so he actually did even more. Our text goes on to tell us that the salvation message was confirmed to us by those who heard. This is the second way God communicated the good news. Salvation was confirmed by witnesses. Consider a court of law. Consider that Jesus, the most trustworthy person to ever live, is giving personal testimony. Consider that what he is saying is really, really good news to your ears about hope for life after death and salvation from sin and deliverance from hell. Now consider that after Jesus was finished with his testimony, one by one, over 500 people went to the stand to share tangible reasons to believe Jesus and his message is credible. Throwing in their personal experiences with him, including his resurrection, And by doing so, these 500 witnesses are telling the court that with their own eyes, they have seen that the testimony of Jesus is completely true. If that were really happening and you were sitting in the courtroom, at what point would you be convinced? Would it take five witnesses, 20 witnesses, 100? The Bible says that there were at least 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection. How many of them would you need to talk with before you would be compelled to believe the testimony of Jesus is trustworthy? How many set-free prisoners would need to return to your cell to tell you that the message of the Son was actually true? How many people have believed and allowed God to apply the good news to their own lives? Those who have walked out of the prison that you are still in, how many of them would need to confirm the truth about this available salvation before you would accept it? Salvation was confirmed by the original witnesses the apostles and the other and the 500 and beyond that. And it is still being confirmed by witnesses today. Every time someone is baptized, it is like a confirmation of the truth of salvation. In fact, let's hear from some witnesses today. As you watch this video of our recent baptism, understand that each of these is testifying as a witness. They are saying that they believe the good news, that through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection which are symbolized by going under and coming out of the water of Jesus Christ, they have actually received salvation. That's what they're saying. Watch this. Amen. 
By the way, we had over 250 people at this, this year's barbecue. It was just amazing. Somehow, thank the Lord, we had enough food. I felt like we needed a fishes and loaves kind of miracle because we only planned on food for 150, and we had over 250, and somehow it worked out. All right, back to the point. Consider the witnesses, those who have testified to the power of the good news in their lives over the last 2,000 years. There have almost certainly been billions of witnesses to the truth of salvation in Christ. But that's not even the end of God's valiant effort to convince us. Not only did the Son of God announce salvation, not only was it confirmed by witnesses, but verse 4 says, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. This sentence contains the third truth regarding the source of the good news and another answer to the question, should we believe this news about salvation in Christ? The answer is yes, and the third reason is this. Salvation is evidenced by the power of God. Can I have an amen to that? Let's go back to the courtroom analogy. To testify in a court of law is to submit testimonial evidence to those who are deciding the case. Our text explicitly says that God testified to the truth of salvation in various powerful ways. This means that God took his stand on, he took his seat on the witness stand. Yes, God took it upon himself. He wouldn't have had to, but he decided to take it upon himself to testify to the truth of the gospel. Certain signs and spiritual gifts have been submitted by God as evidence to prove the trustworthiness of the messengers who brought us the good news. Let's break this down just a little bit. First of all, God testified with signs, wonders, and miracles. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Read the book of Acts regularly. Miracles were everywhere. Secular historians like Josephus and Tacitus mention these miracles in their writings as well. It was known about. There is compelling historical evidence to support the fact that miraculous signs and wonders, the kind that history would record, actually took place around the time of Christ. Of course, the greatest wonder of them all was the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And when He rose again, thousands upon thousands believed. Why did they believe? Well, quite frankly, a lot because of the sign of His resurrection. Not only, in his, it, not only did they believe, though, in His identity as God's Son, but this caused them to believe in His message, the good news about salvation. God had testified powerfully, and the evidence was overwhelming. Signs, wonders, and miracles. I do believe that during the time of Christ, when God physically walked this earth and for a season thereafter, the supernatural was put on display like seldom before or since. You may not have noticed, but even in the biblical record, God's miracles typically come in bunches. For instance, the supernatural signs that happened around the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt did not happen every day, folks. As far as we can tell, they'd spent 400 years in Egypt without any miracles of note. We, we do well to remember that even during biblical history, mind-blowing miracles didn't happen every day, or even every century. 
Now, I am not saying that I do not believe in miracles today. I do. I've seen plenty of them. I believe miracles happen all around the globe, more, of course, than I know. But I also believe the time of Christ and shortly thereafter was a whole other ballgame. I believe the purpose of those wonders and those miracles was indeed for them to serve as signs, that is, as reasons to believe, to testify to the truth of the gospel. Essentially, God testified to the truth of salvation being available through Christ in particularly powerful ways for several decades, at least within our history. This is a provable historical reality. To be clear, I do believe it is a mistake to expect the exact same kinds or the same frequency of overt signs, wonders, and miracles today that happened in the first century. God works in different ways at different times. We simply do not get to tell God how often He should break the natural laws that He created. God will testify when He testifies, and seldom, if ever, as a result of our demands or our doubt. In short, He has done more than enough already, and His Word is already established, not still being revealed and written down. There were reasons for the signs of the first century that no longer exist. As our text declares, the supernatural events of the time of Christ had a very unique purpose. God wanted to testify to the truth of the good news, that which was announced by Christ and confirmed by His eyewitnesses. In truth, were supernatural signs and wonders to become commonplace, they would no longer serve their purpose. Just think about that. Secondly, the writer of Hebrews tells us that God testified to the good news of salvation with gifts of the Holy Spirit. Scripture is clear that gifts of the Holy Spirit continue today. In fact, the Bible says that every single believer has gifts from the Spirit. Apparently, one of the reasons for these gifts is so that God can testify to the gospel truth that salvation is available through Christ. There are lists of spiritual gifts mentioned in several passages of Scripture, gifts like exhortation and discernment, which are easily understood, but frankly, others are listed that nobody really understands, like the gift called a word of knowledge. Nobody knows what that means. They can guess, but they don't know. People can write whole books trying to make a case for what is meant by gifts like these, those which are mentioned but never explained in Scripture, but the truth is that no one really knows. What is the gift of prophecy? Is it basically what I do on Sunday mornings, speaking truth from God's Word? Or is it something more like playing the psychic? I could tell you my very complicated opinion which would take probably an hour. But I'm not here to share opinions. The fact is that churches can really get out of whack trying to define the gifts and trying to decide who has which gifts and sometimes by overemphasizing certain gifts as was the case in the church of Corinth where Paul had to basically say, you'd be better off putting your tongues to rest. Side note, besides Corinth, 
No other church ever received any instructions whatsoever, at least not that we have in the Word of God, about the gift of tongues. Only the church at Corinth, and they, he was trying to get them to calm down. Just, just a side note. I do not believe that emphasizing specific gifts or even trying to define gifts that haven't been clearly defined was ever the point. But rather that together, through a diversity of gifts that maybe we don't even fully understand or that we have never labeled, we can get the job done that God wants done. Frankly, I'm not all that sure how I should label my gifts. To be honest, I've found that those who are super worried about identifying and exercising their specific gifts tend to abuse them. The point of the gifts was never about the individual or even the individual gift. It was about serving each other and building each other up in the church. Notice the last little phrase in our text. It says these gifts are distributed according to His own will. Interestingly, this same phrase, according to God's will, also appears in other passages regarding gifts of the Spirit. The concept is that these gifts come from the Holy Spirit, and He gives different gifts to different people. In fact, since this is done according to His will, it would be totally up to God if He wanted to leave some gifts in the past, or even if He wanted to give someone a gift that had not previously been identified, something new. Could He not do that? His gifts depend upon His will. In that specific situation, at that particular time, even in that church. When we try to tell God that all believers should have certain gifts, we have missed the point. Since they are given according to His will, it is actually possible that God is giving different gifts today than He was in the first century church. One thing is certain. Gifts are up to God. They are His testimony, not ours. Hear that. Gifts, spiritual gifts, are God's testimony, not ours. The point from our text today is that these gifts are given to testify to the truth and goodness of the news of salvation. Have you ever understood, have you ever, have you ever understood that gifts of the Spirit are ultimately about testifying to the truth of the good news? Even in the fact that they build up the church. We know that from other scripture, that's, that they're given to build up the church, the community of those who are saved. In doing so, God testifies to the reality of salvation. Yes, God gives spiritual gifts to those who are saved so they can build up the church so that when the good news about salvation is preached by the church, it will not be without the testimony of the spirits. So to review, the good news about the availability of salvation was announced by Christ, confirmed by witnesses, and testified to by the power of God. As I've pointed out, these also amount to reasons to believe in the gospel. But now I fear we've spent too much time on the good news at the expense of missing the main point of this passage. Then again, who wants to hear bad news for 45 minutes, right? Well, I gave you the good news first, but it's time to tell you how badly you need it. The very fact that the salvation of God in Christ is so readily available, so simple to receive, and so well attested to is also the reason that God is completely just 
in eventually judging those who continue to neglect it. As I said in the beginning, the salvation message is good news for those who receive it and bad news for those who neglect it. Now, some of you are going to have a hard time thinking of yourselves at this point. You think you're good to go, and maybe you are. I don't want to create doubt where there doesn't need to be doubt. If you're saved, you're saved. But this passage and several passages in Hebrews are not actually designed to be read by those who know for certain that they're lost. This is written to folks who may well consider themselves to be religious or at least spiritual, call themselves Christians, and it's designed to wake every single one of us up and to make us think. If you look at the overarching message of today's text, it's very simple. The thesis is that if you neglect God's plan of salvation, you are doomed. This brings us to the fourth and final point, which is simply this. Salvation can be missed. I'll say it once more. This passage is not written to atheists or agnostics or anyone who has rejected or even ignored the message of Christ. This isn't designed to broadcast with a bullhorn in the streets of Portland or Seattle. This is actually a letter written to the church. This is written to those who think they are good to go with God. Basically, that's most of us, right? So what does it say to us? Let's look again. Verse 1 says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And then from verse 3, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Right away we can see two things. That when it comes to salvation, some drift away and others neglect to fully respond. Obviously, we also know that many flat out reject salvation, but again, this is not written to them, so we're going to focus on the other two situations. Now, I must first take a moment to establish the fact that I firmly believe in what has been called eternal security, also known as perseverance of the saints, or to use the old Baptist lingo, I do believe that once you are saved, and if if and only if you are truly saved, then you will always be saved. Once you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, adopted as a son or daughter of Christ, or of God in Christ, there is no longer anything that can separate you from Him. Nothing can take you from His hand. That said, I am afraid that in our Christianity today, especially, there are many people who believe they are saved who in reality are not. Apparently, this was also the case for some in the original audience of the book of Hebrews. In fact, this is one of the primary themes of the book. So let's think about this some more as we look back to our text. The bad news is that it is possible to miss salvation, even for someone who has spent his or her life right on the edge of it. We see in our text two different ways to miss it. Some, uh, some miss salvation by drifting away. It says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention, much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Notice what it is that they drift away from. They drift away from what they have heard, the message of salvation. The it in that sentence, at the end of that sentence, refers back to the message of salvation, that which this person has heard, not to their salvation itself, but to the message of salvation. That should be clear there if you look at it. This reminds me of people who sort of tried Jesus or the church for a while only to go right back to where they started after a relatively short time. 
Often these folks come oh so close to salvation just before they gradually slip away. They might have even paid lip service to the gospel at some point, but their heart was never truly given to Christ. If you look at the context of this passage, you'll see that it is not speaking about people backsliding in their behavior. This is not about believers who are messing up. See, this is about ultimately failing to act on the message being spoken. I hope you can see that there. This message that's being spoken is what they're not responding to. They're drifting away from the message. The message spoken by who? By Christ, by His witnesses, and by the Holy Spirit. This is about missing, sal- this, this is about missing salvation by never fully receiving it. Unfortunately, I've seen this many times. Some people just barely miss their big moment, their big opportunity. They drift away from the message being spoken. And sometimes they may not hear it again for a long time or maybe ever. I witnessed this several times recently in Nicaragua. One person in particular is still on my heart. Someone who rejected the gospel about how to be saved through faith in Christ, she simply said, not today. But that's not the whole story. You didn't see how close she came. She almost said yes. This was a long conversation with a young lady who was really understanding what was being offered. But in the end, she said no. She came so close. But I watched her get up right up to the line several times only to drift away from it repeatedly. Time always seems to speed up on a mission trip, almost as if God decides to work within the framework of the one week that we have. It's incredible to witness. But in our context here at home, it usually goes more like this. A person shows up at church for one reason or another. Maybe something happened in their life that made them think, or maybe a Christian friend's testimony drew them in, or perhaps someone close to them died with hope they don't have. But for whatever reason... They really begin to seriously consider the claims of Christianity. They start coming to church. Maybe they even start talking the talk. For some, this season might go so far that we can see changes in their life. This person is moving in the direction of salvation, maybe even praying and reading the Bible. He or she is coming to church every Sunday, maybe even joining a small group. In some cases, this person might even be baptized, having said the right words fooling the pastors or maybe even themselves. And yes, that happens. But then, after whatever extent of Christian testimony had been demonstrated, he or she starts to go back in the wrong direction. They begin to drift away from the church, from God, and from the truth. Remember the parable of the sower of seeds. Jesus talked about three different groups of people who were given the message of salvation. More than one of those groups appears to receive the message. But if you remember, only one of them is truly saved. The rest wind up barren in the end. The point is that it is possible to look saved, think you're saved, tell everyone you're saved, have your pastor think you're saved, even be baptized because you said you were saved, and still not be saved. Those in this camp usually drift away eventually because they haven't truly been changed on the inside by the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit. If this describes you and your heart is soft enough to realize it, then you ought to consider starting over and making your salvation. Sure, that's probably something you'd want to talk about with one of your pastors. That said, I'm not wanting anyone to doubt his or her salvation unnecessarily. I've also found that some people 
have a problem with that, to doubt it because they're not perfect. And so there's a fine line here, but what am I trying to do? I'm trying to preach the Word of God, in particular the text that we've come to today. To that end, let me simply say that if you've drifted and you continue to drift, you may want to reevaluate your salvation. The hard truth is that it is possible to miss it. Even though you're in church, even though you know all the right answers, if it were not so, there would be no reason for today's warning. Those who drift away should beware. You should pay much more careful attention, as our text says. And the reason you should pay attention is because of the next part, which is this, verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The assumed answer, of course, is that we cannot escape. Here we see the second way that we can miss salvation, by neglecting it. The first part of this verse is a reference to the Old Covenant or the law, parts of which the Hebrews assumed had been received through angels. Since man cannot see God, they likely thought he had used angels to deliver the law. And the point is, again, that whether directly by angels or by prophets, or as it says in verse 1 of this book, by various other means, the old way did not compare to the new way, because now the message had been delivered by the Son of God himself. And so the writer is saying that if God's people had gotten themselves into deep trouble by neglecting the message back in the Old Testament, then just think how much more culpable are those who neglect the message now that it has been delivered by Christ himself. This word, neglect, to me communicates something even a little bit, little bit more serious than drifting away. To neglect is more of a long-term problem, I think. If you forget to, forget to spend time with your children for a week, that isn't really neglect. Maybe you drifted from the appropriate responsibility level. But if you don't pay attention to them for a year, now we're talking about neglect. This speaks to me of people who participate in the church of Jesus Christ for years, for decades, for their whole lives even. But the fact is they never really surrendered to Jesus. And by the way, this becomes apparent. In my opinion, many churches die because they have too many of these folks still attending, even while most of the true believers have moved on. And so, you see, at this point, we're not talking about one who drifts away. If only. Some of you have been in these churches. I, I'm talking about dead, dying churches. If only they would drift away, sometimes you feel like. No, these, these are not those. This is one who stays. <laughs> and who plays the game until they don't even know it's only a game. This is a person who talks the talk very well, but who in reality has never responded personally to the gospel. They never repented. They were never actually born again. Their salvation is presumed, but nonetheless absent. The author of Hebrews says, if that's you, how do you think you will escape? How will you be saved if unlike the multitudes who simply don't know, you know all about it and you still neglect it? How much worse is it for you, he says? Having heard so clearly the good news about salvation for years and having understood it and yet choosing to disregard it or not fully respond to it, in other words, to neglect it, how can you expect to escape? How can you expect to be rescued from the fire when you have so long neglected to take the outstretched hand of the fireman? Again, the larger point here is that salvation can be missed. That's the warning. Salvation can be missed 
even by those who are ever so close to receiving it, even by those who have pretended to be saved for a time, for a lifetime sometimes. Ultimately, there's good news and there's bad news today. The good news does cancel out the bad as long as you receive it. But if you drift from it, neglect it, or certainly if you reject the good news, the bad news remains in effect for you. Today's text begins with the phrase, we must pay much more careful attention. That has been my goal this morning, to draw your attention to your own salvation. Are you one who never quite got there? You can still cross the line of faith this morning. Spiritually, you can sign on the dotted line, jump in with both feet, and tell God you accept His gift. You can repent and believe today. Maybe you feel like you sort of have the believe part to a point. But if you are unwilling to repent, maybe even to repent of pretending to be saved, but never having truly surrendered to Christ, in the end you will find yourself in the category of not escaping, of not actually being saved before it's too late. True faith is repentant faith. You can turn to Christ today. You can surrender your life to Him. You can stop playing games, start following Jesus for real today. You just have to turn to Him. Or maybe you just needed a wake-up call to make sure you aren't taking your salvation for granted. Don't drift even for a week from the greatest gift that has ever been given. Please don't neglect your salvation either prior to it or afterward. If you do, you may wake up one day unsure that you ever received it in the first place, and that would mean you're taking chances with your eternity. The Bible tells us to make our salvation sure by how we live and also to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We don't work to be saved. We don't work to stay saved, but we do work to show ourselves and others that we really are saved. I want to lead a prayer this morning, a prayer for those who want to make sure, a prayer for those who want to nail it down. If you haven't already, the Son of God is standing outside your prison cell. How will you respond? Pray with me. Someone here may not even realize that you can talk to God in your heart, that He can hear you by His Spirit. So there may be someone here today that's ready to, to respond. There's a lot of debate today about how we, whether we pray a prayer to be saved and all this stuff. I don't know how else you communicate with God but to pray. So I'm just going to guide you. Just tell Him in your heart right now. Save me. <laughs> Cry out to Jesus. Understand who He is, that He was God in the flesh. I believe you were God in the flesh, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose again, proving you can give me eternal life. I believe that. And today, Lord, I turn away from all the other things and maybe my own spirituality or whatever it was, I turn away, I repent from the things that I have sort of held on to, and I throw it all on you. It's all on you, God. I only can be saved by you saving me. So today I surrender everything else. 
And I'm turning away from all of it. And I'm turning to Christ in desperation. Save me. Save me from sin. Save me from myself. Save me from my sentence. In the power of Jesus' name, if that is a real moment of faith for you, God will save you. He will take you home when your time has come. You are His, sealed forever by His Spirit. And you can trust in that. You can trust in Him to keep you saved. Father, today I pray for anyone in this room who maybe just make sure today we don't want to see people sort of like saved over and over again. We, we don't believe in that. But someone today that either it was the first time they just ever really did it or they're, they weren't sure and they wanted to make sure today that, that really we could mark this day, that they would mark this day, that they would let it be known, let me know at least, and we could talk about next steps. Father, thank you for working in, in lives. Thank you that last Sunday there was an individual who let me know that they were making a profession of faith in Christ for the first time. We rejoice with the angels. And I pray that today there might be others. Keep working in our church. Keep working in our community through our church. We are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.